All right, you ready to study God's Word? Get your Bibles. Open it up to 1 Samuel. In just a moment, I'm going to be reading out of 1 Samuel some verses in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. And uh, if you uh, did not bring your Bible today, we have good news. We always post this on the screen overhead so you can follow along. And uh, that way you can be engaged in what God's Word says as well. We've been mentioning, and today is the day, that uh, we are participating in what has been uh, called Pulpit Freedom Sunday. And uh, I, along with somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 1,000 other pastors across the nation, are going to take just one Sunday out of the year. Now, there may be more Sundays that this uh, topic will be broached, but we're going to take at least this Sunday together and speak to our congregations from the Scripture about some of our cultural challenges, some of our political challenges, and make some important application. You know, the Bible says that if the righteous rule, the nation rejoices. It says if the unrighteous rule, the people groan. See, my feeling is that if we're going to groan, you ought to get a heads up on it. I don't know if you've had opportunity... Um, there have been just some interesting articles in the paper, and uh, uh, just so happened I made the paper. Section B of Sunday paper, there you go. Uh, by a, really a, a great reporter, Adam Parker. I've met, I shouldn't say I've met him, I visited with uh, Adam a time or two via the internet and on the phones, and, and I think it's a perfectly fair article. Um, so I, I, I just give him thumbs up that uh, he presented these things fairly. Uh, the title of the article was Group Pushes Pulpit Politics. Now, I, I would have preferred the title Pastors Preach Comprehensive Christianity. But nevertheless, uh, I wasn't the editor at that particular point. So anyway, you can pick that up and there might be a link to it to my Facebook as well. But nonetheless, this is the area we're going to delve into today. All of this took place. I, I don't have time to give you all the background to this. In fact, you can go to our website, hit the iTunes link, and you can listen to last Wednesday's night's message, and I, I spent a little bit more time sharing on this topic. But there's a group called the Alliance Defense Fund, with which I'm associated, of about 2,500 attorneys all over America. And uh, their primary purpose is to help defend churches, predominantly our size of church, because we don't have the tens or even the hundreds of thousands of dollars it oftentimes takes to defend yourself against a potential litigation, especially when it comes to challenges from the government. And so uh, uh, their ministry, their activity is, is to bring the intellectual firepower uh, into the courtrooms of America in order that churches exactly like ours uh, can be defended uh, from any sort of hostility that might seek to take away any of our rights. And I mentioned last Wednesday night that in 1954 there was an amendment that was put into the IRS code, the 501c3 code, which oversees nonprofit entities with regards to political activity. And uh, it is the position of the Alliance Defense Fund, along with numerous, numerous pastors all over the nation, that that particular amendment restricts our ability to bring application of the Scriptures uh, in the way we see fit and the way the Scriptures endorse into the political arena. And so it's being challenged. In fact, uh, we have tried over the past several years. In 2008, there were 33 pastors on this one Sunday that intentionally uh, delivered a message 
that would encroach, you know, the, uh, the boundaries of the Johnson Amendment. 2009, there were 84 pastors. 2010, there were 100 pastors. And we don't have the final numbers yet, but we know that number this year is over 500 and may well be up close to 1,000. And so uh, in every state of the union, uh, all across our nation, pastors are just sharing on some of the challenges that our culture and our politics is having, and we're making scriptural application to it. You see, I believe that the Bible touches every aspect of our life. Every aspect of life. And this pulpit, as well as every pulpit, now listen to me when I say this, I tend to be more conservative in my viewpoints. I tend to be more conservative in how I understand the scriptures. I understand not everybody looks at it my way. I believe that there are probably liberal pulpits and liberal churches that would see things differently than I do, and I would maintain it's that pastor's right to apply the scripture as he sees fit to his congregation. I think it's my right to share it to my congregation, and I believe it's my right to share it to anyone who wants to listen and to share it to the world. And this is not really a, a sound of arrogance, but I just believe it's confidence that given, given freedom and the unrestricted nature of speech, I believe that the Bible works every time. But this amendment has been used to fear many of us into a belief that somehow if we broach these topics, we might lose our tax-exempt status. And that, my friends, needs, needs to be challenged. And so... Uh, we're going to do that today, and uh, this message is aimed straight. It's on, it's being recorded. It's going to be one of numerous messages that will be gathered up, and it's going to be sent to the IRS. And uh, we're just going to see what happens. You know, we've been doing it for years, and we'll just keep doing it. And uh, it's aimed straight at our political and cultural situation in America. Now, I thought about this. This message this morning may not mean as much this October as it will next October. I guarantee you next October. Yeah. Come back one year from today. But it's going to lay some good groundwork. First Samuel chapter 8. I want to read just a few, a few verses. I entitled the lesson this morning, Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. It says, beginning in verse 4, we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, meaning Samuel, Look, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me. That I should not reign, this is the Lord speaking, that I should not reign over them. Interesting verses, aren't they? It was a time that's not all that unlike our own. Israel had a cycle of leadership problems that they were living through as a nation. You study the history of Israel, you will see that they lived on this, this perpetual roller coaster ride. There were times when they were doing well and the land would 
prosper and they would be enjoying the blessings of God. And then there were other times that they would be enslaved by their enemies. There would be difficulties as well as even natural disasters that would come upon them. And, and they lived cyclically. There were good times and there were bad times. Good times and bad times. And all of these times were linked to often their leadership. In fact, in the book of Judges, we begin to see that, that when they were having bad times, God would raise up those whom he called judges. You could put in parentheses, prophets. And these judges would arise and they would move in the nation and they would call the nation back and they would lead the nation back in order to, to be in a place of righteousness or right standing uh, before God. They wanted the nation to be on track. And when Israel got back on track, the goodness of God began to flow to them once again. Now, you may ask the question, why judges? Why did God raise up judges? I mean, why didn't God raise up senators? Well, just, just watch the news. Well, why didn't God raise up representatives? And why, why judges? Because, listen, it was always God's intent to rule his people as directly as possible. You've got to understand from the beginning of time, God's intent was that he would be our king. That he would rule us as a people. He wanted to be the one, the only, that began to give oversight to the people. God literally had a desire in his heart. He wanted to be the king. However, the people, following the carnal dictates of their hearts, and again, this is just Sunday School 101, that all of us are born in sin. We're born with the propensity to do that which is selfish and, and certainly self-interested. And because of our own selfish ways and Israel's selfish ways, they would constantly rebel. And in their rebellion, what they found out was is that the Lord would call them back. He would call. He would appoint. He would raise up these delegated authorities called judges who would represent him to keep them accountable and focused. Now, this is such a great point. Because everybody can say, hey, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my King. I'm accountable to Jesus. Well, we all say hallelujah to that. But it's amazing how much more uh, practical it becomes when flesh and blood is looking you in the eye. And so he would give these, these prophets to them and these judges to them and, and they would call the nation back. But even with this method, the nation of Israel lived this roller coaster existence. America is in a mess. Now, to be fair, it's not one person, it's not one party's fault per se. Our whole political system has chosen, chosen greed and power over righteousness and right choices. Both parties, the R's and the D's, have had their moments of running this culture. And here we are, nearly run into a ditch. And so I perfectly understand, if we're going to evaluate the past, that there's plenty of blame to be thrown around. The problem in politics is that everyone gets caught in the chicken and the egg argument. Everybody starts arguing over which came first, who did what first? And so we've got Democrats yelling at Republicans that it's their fault for all the years they were in charge. And we have Republicans yelling at Democrats that it's their fault for all the years that they've been in charge. 
And what that does is it takes the focus off where we're at. You see, you can only play the hand at the table you've been dealt. Hopefully that's not too much poker. You can't, you can't play the hand you wish you had. You can't play the hand you thought you should have had. You've got to play the hand you've been dealt. Israel, here in the Scripture, is in a mess. They needed something to change. Something had to be different. What they had tried, even serving God and, and following the, the call of the prophets and the judges, they, they tried that on occasion, but it seemed like even in their carnal minds that didn't work. And it was because they never followed out to completion God's plan or God's ways. And so what they decided one day, the nation decided this, that they wanted to look and they wanted to be like other nations. Other nations have kings. We want a king. We want to be like everyone else is. Now, you got to understand in the scriptures as we interpret this, and I put it on the screen overhead, that the king equals a form of governing. It's a monarchy. It's a form or a way of governing. They wanted, they wanted something different than what God was offering them. God said, I'm happy to rule you. I want to rule you. I want to rule over your life. But they didn't want God's rule. They wanted what somebody else had. They wanted to be governed like other nations, and they called for a king. Now, America has found herself in similar dynamics. We have as well forgotten God. Listen, I don't even have to make a case for this. I mean, we'll set up Muslim prayer rooms in airports and nobody blinks, but you put just a little manger scene on, on a public piece of property and everybody goes crazy. See, we've forgotten God. And again, my point is simply this. Let's just let ideas flow. Let me tell you something. If you aren't confident with your idea, that's why you want to shut down mine. Because I guarantee you, you give me a whack at it, and people will respond to it. But that's where America is today. We're at, we're at a place where everybody's paralyzed. Oh, God, God forbid we pray at a football game. God forbid we would invoke blessings. I'm telling you right now, we wouldn't be a nation today if the ACLU had been around in 1776. We have forgotten God. We are serving our idols. We have walked away from biblical precept, and now, and now we find ourselves in economic problems. Now, let me just say this. The culture would hear me say that, and they wouldn't connect the dots. They would say, what does the worship of God have anything to do with economics? Well, the Bible says clearly that when you, when you put yourself in right standing with God, He blesses and He prospers the land. When you don't, it all dries up. The problem is with our culture is they don't want the dots connected that the spiritual and the practical are exceedingly needful of one another. And so just like the nation of Israel, when God said it would happen, He said, if you ignore me, this is what's going to happen. We find ourselves confused. We find ourselves bewildered. And so we have a culture that is crying out, we want a new king. We... Listen, we want a new government. We want to be like other nations. So why don't we try to be like Europe? Golly, do we just, can, can we not just watch our television sets? I've heard people say, we ought to be more like France. 
Come on. France wouldn't be France if it weren't for the fact that we help them every time somebody rattles a saber at them and pull their tails out of a ditch. But that's what we we want to be more European. We want to be we want to try what they try. Let's let's try more socialism. Let's try doing what China's doing. Hey, China seems to be successful and they're communists. Why, why don't we try these things? Let's embrace their mores. Let's embrace their values. Apparently the vice president thinks that's okay as he affirms their forced abortion policies in China. Go check it out on YouTube. The founding father stuff. Oh, this founding father stuff all you guys talk about. It's, it's just passe. That rigid constitutionality. Oh, no, no, the Constitution is just meant to, to morph and develop and, and go wherever the breezes of history take it. Even though, listen to me, that Constitution, and they don't like to hear this, uh, some that are out there, that Constitution, I can pull biblical precept out of that Constitution. Yes, I can. Oh, yes, I can. Someone will say there's not one thing mentioned in the Constitution about the Bible. Listen to me, you wouldn't even have the Constitution if you didn't have the Declaration of Independence. Because you can't codify liberty unless you understood what true liberty was. It's being endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. But that's just outdated. Let's just do what other nations are doing. And just like Israel of old, God is giving us what we asked for. Historically for Israel, despite these moments... And these glimmers of hope, it was the beginning of the end for them as a nation. Let's not forget, Israel may be alive and well today, but they went on about a 1,500-year sabbatical. Because of their choices, they were scattered to the four corners of this world. And folks, unless something changes, and I'm just giving you my opinion, unless something dramatically changes in the next five to ten years in America, we may have set our rudder to a place that I don't know we can, that we can recover from. Unless we as a culture begin to return to some precepts that have made us great, not just great in and of ourselves, but we were great in the eyes of God, I can easily see the same template being framed for our nation. And you do know that no democracy historically has survived over about 250 years. It's because of the carnal heart. Then unless the heart is dealt with, will always do what is the selfish thing to do. Now the question is, the question really becomes to me, that if we look at this and we're given an opportunity to change, then we need to understand the dynamics that were going on. The question is, how did they miss it? Because if we can figure out how they missed it, maybe we can avoid it. So how did they miss it? Well, let me just suggest to you that it started first with the corruption of the ministry. I didn't read to you the whole chapter. It's really an interesting chapter if you were to read the whole thing. And I, I will not read all of it. But there are a couple uh, passages in 1 Samuel that are exceedingly insightful. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, we'll find out that the, that the whole context, the whole melu of what was going on here was, was the corruption of the ministry. And here we find the sons of Eli... And they were the ones that were in charge of the ministry of the nation at that particular time. The scripture says they were corrupt. They were corrupt because they, uh, they took from the people uh, their resources in such a way that 
they were in, enlarging themselves, uh, but they weren't used to help or minister or, uh, you know, used righteously in the midst of the people. They were financially corrupt. And so uh, they would bring their sacrifices and they were supposed to offer sacrifices in a certain way. But what they did was instead of, you know, when they got the cow, instead of sacrificing it as the Lord said to, you know, they keep the best parts of it. They put it in their freezer, so to speak. Because you do know they didn't have freezers back then. I'm just trying to give you sort of a modern. But, they, but they'd stick it back there and they'd use it for their own dinner table. And so there was this corruption of the ministry. They were morally corrupt, the Bible tells us as well, because the scripture says that the sons of Eli would literally sleep with women at the door of the temple. Man, that, that, would, that would have been quite a sight, I guess, coming to church. But that's how, that's how emboldened they were in their corruption. And what happened was, and, and the same thing would happen if you were to see that and have been seeing that, and that is if the ministry is corrupt, it loses its credibility to speak to the nation. And that's exactly what had taken place. Samuel comes along and tries to put this in order. But amazingly, even Samuel's sons end up being corrupt as well. In fact, in 1 Samuel 8, that same chapter, verse 3, it says concerning Samuel's sons that they did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. So the people had hoped for better when Samuel's sons had come along. But unfortunately, they lacked integrity as well. And so what took place was is that the nation no longer wanted to hear from the pulpits of the ministry that was taking place in Israel. And so they said, we don't, we don't, we don't want to listen to the ministry. We don't, list, list, we don't want to listen to the priests, to the prophets. We aren't going to listen. They're corrupt. They're just as corrupt as everyone else. We've decided we're just going to go with what we see and we want a king. Guys, how much application do I have to put at this point? I'm as aggravated as a lot of the church is, and, 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 and sometimes I understand the in, incredulity of the world when they look at the ministry and they see high-profile ministers squandering money, living, living so far out of the ballpark. Listen, I'm all for prosperity. You know me. I teach prosperity and I think people should prosper and I like nice things. But you know what? I've often said this. I can only live in one house at a time. I, I you know, I don't need 14 cars sitting in a garage somewhere. I, I, I mean, we see this silliness under the auspices of prosperity and then add on top of that, the immorality with which the world lets Hollywood get by with, but it certainly holds the standard up as well they should to the ministry. And when all this begins to collapse, nobody wants to hear what we've got to say. And before we point our fingers at an administration in Washington, D.C., or at a Congress, or at the Supreme Court, or at Columbia, South Carolina, or at the Democrats, or at the Republicans, before we start pointing fingers, I just need to be honest enough to say that the church and the ministry has lost its voice because we got to get our act together. They aren't listening because they don't think we have anything to say because they haven't seen a group of people walk it and talk it. Is it any wonder when you just see this stuff that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't amaze me that they blow us off. I'd blow us off too. 
But a part of moral reformation is not just righteousness again in our government, but it must come to our churches. We have to be living examples that cause people to take note and not write us off. But they didn't have that then, and so they said, give us a king. We're going to go somewhere else. The church hadn't got its act together, so we're just going to count on government to do everything for us. We want a king. Well, what was the outcome? Interesting. This is so interesting in these passages. Because in verse 11, the Lord begins to share with them what is going to begin to happen. I'm going to read this to you. Listen to this carefully. This is verses 11 through 18. Pop it on the screen. This is, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He's prophesying to them. He says he will take. Everyone say take. Now, I want you as I read through these passages to see how many times the word take comes up on screen. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his own horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. Next passage. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his his chariots. Now let's hear this. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Next verse. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. That almost looks like transferring wealth, doesn't it? You wondered if it was in the Bible, whether it's right or right. God says this is what will happen. And give them to his servants. Next verse. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. Next verse. He will take, well, golly, here's another tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And listen, and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for you yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Did you notice how much that word take came up, though? Can I just give you several things? I'm just pulling them out of these verses and you can you can you can argue with me, but they're there. As plain as the nose on your face. There are several things that is said here. Number one is this. He said, you get a, you get a new government, you're going to get greater government bureaucracy. Now, there's nothing wrong with working for the government. Don't misunderstand me. My dad was an air traffic controller. He worked for the FAA. Provided for us a wonderful, wonderful livelihood. So I understand there's a place, an appropriate place for government. Some is needed. But the point the Lord is making is it will never stop. He says, that's what's going to happen. It's never going to stop. Which, which brings us secondly, in fact, all these are tied together. That expansion will eventually enslave your children. That's what it said in those verses. Because what's going to take place as this grows and grows and grows, it's literally going to consume so much that it's going to leave a debt that will cripple your children and the opportunity they have to flourish. Because something's got to feed this massive thing that the king's going to enlarge. Number three, he says that he says there's going to be ever increasing consumption. You have to know that as the king's ranks grow, as government's ranks grow, you got to feed it. 
And this is what people don't understand. It's a very simple point, and it's a biblical point. What you feed grows, what you starve diminishes. That is why you've got to cut money from that which you want to diminish. You starve it, it will reduce. If you feed it, it just keeps growing. But then the interesting thing that I just noticed, which was number four, and that is, remember how on two different occasions, it says that the king is going to come get a tenth. Ever increasing taxes from the people. Now, this is really interesting at this point because the Lord says this is what's going to happen. Really, literally, he says he's going to take 10% from here and then he's going to take 10% from here. So 10% plus 10% equals what? 20%. Now, get the context of what he's saying here. The context of what he's saying here is this. If you cry out for this type of government, this type of king, he's going to come. You aren't even going to believe this if I tell you this. He's going to come Hold your hats, put your seatbelts on. He's going to come and want 20%. That's the point. God said, listen, 20% is tyranny. That's God. Most of us in this room probably pay on our income somewhere near 35%. We work till you hear it every, every year on radio or television. We work till May, some date in May every year. And we're working just to pay our taxes. There's property taxes. There's sales taxes. There's gas taxes. And then there's those taxes that we just changed the label on it. Tolls and fees and add it all up. God's word said, keep the context. He said, if this is what you want. Lo and behold, you're going to get gasp, 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 20% in taxes. Folks, where are we? We're at the place where it's become tyrannical. And then along with that, number five, the door then was open to other gods. And that's exactly what happened when they got their king. In order to make treaties, you've got to understand in those days when kings made treaties and they did their foreign policy, they literally married the daughter or a woman from that country, and that sealed the deal for the foreign policy. But what happened was, in Israel's case, was that as these kings would marry these foreign women, they would bring their gods with them. And they would literally build high places. And and the worship of Yahweh, the worship of Jehovah, was diminished and pushed out of the public arena. And yet the high places in the land were reserved for the foreign gods from Assyria and from Persia, from the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Parisiites, and all the ites. Come on now, wake up. Can we not see these things? Does any of it sound remotely familiar? Now, uh, you're going to have to listen very carefully these last few moments. Because if I misunderstood, you may walk out of here and, and you may be confused. And I, I would rather you just be confirmed or offended. So listen, listen just zone in for a minute and listen. I'll say it again. We did not get to this point in America through any one person or through any one political party. So I get 
So don't come running up to me after service. I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want you coming up to me saying, well, so-and-so, you know, back when did, and so-and-so did this, and so-and-so today. Just stop. I get it. I get the blame game mantra. But it's time that our politicians and our leaders stop this. And it starts with the man at the top. That's what leadership is. Leadership is, well, leadership. Now, I did not vote for President Obama in 2008. And just to let you know, I'll be just totally open. I didn't vote for John McCain either. I voted for Chuck Baldwin because I just didn't, I, I, for once in my life, I didn't want to go into a voting booth and have to hold my nose. That was just me. So I voted for, for the constitutional candidate. So I didn't, I didn't vote for our president. But I can say with clean hands and a pure heart that when he was elected, listen to me, I wanted, I literally, I can say this with clean hands. I, I wanted him to succeed. I did. I, I mean, I'm, I, maybe there were people out there voting for his failure. I don't know, but not for me. I don't, I don't want failure for my nation. So I'm literally, I got to my knees and I prayed. I said, God, help him. Turn him like you did Saul into another man. Speak to him in the night through dreams and visions. I was praying this stuff, folks. Listen, I, to this day, I pray for his safety. I pray for his family's safety. I do not want anything to take place to our president in any sort of violent way. I pray for safety for him and his family constantly. I respect the office. If you were to come, I would refer to him as my president and I would honor the office. I understand authority. But now let's get back to where we're at in America. The president is the leader. Understand, I understand authority this way, that you're not leading on your own. You're leading under the delegated auspices of God himself. Whether he knows it or anyone else knows it, all of us are commissioned to lead in ways of righteousness. It's not righteous to keep running up paralyzing debt on our kids. It's not righteous to sign executive orders, paying with our tax money abortions on demand. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. And let me just say, my greatest problem with Ronald Reagan is called Sandra Day O'Connor. It's not righteous. It's not righteous to use the military as some sexual experiment. It's not righteous to make us slaves to China as they own our debt. I understand it may not be all his fault, but he is now our leader. And it is time, Mr. President, to lead your nation. We can't continue this path as, as a nation. You wanted a job. You told us we could hope. You told us there would be change. You quoted to us the scripture, Mr. President. You said you were a Christian. It is time, Mr. President, to bear the fruits of Christianity. You say, well, well, Pastor, how do you think we approach all this? How do we recover? You've said all of this. You've made your point. How do we, what, where do we go from here? How do we recover? Let me give you four quick things and I'm done. Number one, our pulpit needs a restoration of a backbone. We don't need celebrity pastors anymore. We need some prophetic voices. It's time for pastors to quit worrying about the growth of their churches and start worrying about the decline of their nation. 
It's time for mega churches to use their influence to speak out. To whom much is given, much is required. And I will say one more time, God bless our friends at Seacoast. God bless Representative Tim Scott. God bless Pastor Greg Surratt. God bless them all. And I, and, I, and I am here to say, if no one else will stand with you, I'll stand with you on this one. You just keep declaring the truth. It's time we got a backbone in our pulpits. Number two, political leaders need to hear truth from the pulpits of this nation. They're all going to church, they tell me, somewhere. Ask any political candidate. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll go to church, I go to this church. Go to that church. Well, good. You need to go to a church and the pastors of this nation need to get their politicians on the front row, look them in the eye and tell them that they have a responsibility before God to do what's right in his eyes. And by the way, I know this is being recorded. I know I know it's going to the IRS. And I just like to say out loud that if an IRS agent is listening to this message, even as I'm speaking it, will you please forward this to the White House? Please forward it to the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. Come get me. See, if, see, if every pulpit in America is willing to go to jail, none of us have to. Number three, God's people got to see beyond themselves. If, if you vote for a politician... Just because they promise you something, all the while babies are being killed, debt is enslaving your kids and your grandkids, we are imploding as a nation, but, but nobody better touch your check or your entitlement or whatever it is. All I have to say is shame on you. You know, we shame the rich, and I understand there's greed and there's avarice, and the rich need to be taken to task on their selfishness too. And I have done that on more occasions than I can count. But it is time we looked at the other spectrum of the political class and tell them that if you're willing to let babies be aborted and all this silliness and, and, and just craziness and sin to take place because you're going to get your check, shame on you. Take, take my check. Keep your money. You can walk out of here. I don't want you to. I want you to be, hear me because I don't want any confusion on this. But it doesn't matter to me anymore. If somebody doesn't start saying something, there ain't going to be a check for any of us. Our problem is we have allowed government to take the place of God. And now we trust our government more than we'll even trust in God. There are 180 million Christians, we are told, in this nation. 180 million who say, quote, we are born again. It would, you fool me. You're fooling me. If that were true, we wouldn't be where we are today. And then number four, we got to pray and we got to respond. Now, I put both of those in there because this is important. This is not... This year, a major election cycle. So I understand there's some imperative that can be diminished. But I want to say several things because we're about a year away from when there will be some important decisions that will be made. And I, I just want to share this out loud. 
and say to all of my Republican friends, if you're a Republican, that it is time to hold all these candidates' feet to the fire. I'm tired of us negotiating who's most electable because we just don't like President Obama. Listen, this isn't about who you like. This is about what God likes. And it's time we started understanding that it's, we, pushed, we pushed idealism just a little bit. I've done this for years. I've su- I supported Alan Keyes, by the way, a black gentleman. He was an ambassador to the UN as well as some other appointed positions. I supported Alan Keyes because, let me tell you, there was no question as to where he stood on life. And I supported him for years. For years. I support Representative Tim Scott. And I, I tell you what, I would have no problem. I believe I haven't checked it all out with Herman Cain. I don't care what the pigmentation color is of their skin. I don't care what the letter is behind their name. I don't care. I want to know what God wants. And I'm just gracious and merciful enough. You may not realize I really am full of grace and mercy. I want still my president to succeed. I'm still praying that he succeeds. And he's got about a year before I begin to tell everybody what I think. Really. There's still time. Anybody can repent at a moment's notice. Why not someone in the White House? Come on, if you're a Republican in here, you've got to hold your candidate to the fire. It's not about beating Obama. It's about getting our nation back on track and all my Democrat friends as well. It's time you started praying that that hope and change turns into God's hope and change. It's time your eyes were awakened to some other facts that are going on that does not please the Lord and you're going to prioritize your life. Listen, I'll just tell you right up front. If they're not pro-life, they ain't getting my vote. Let me tell you, you don't have to worry. Listen. You don't have to worry about the economy. Well, well, let me just say this. There'd be 40 million more people paying into Social Security right now if we hadn't aborted them. Did you know that? Maybe we'd be economically on track. There's 40 million convenience abortions that took place since Roe v. Wade. And now we say, well, we don't have enough people paying into the system. Well, I can tell you where some of them went to. You say, well, you just can't be a one-issue one issue voter. Yes, I can. Pro-life, let me tell you, there is, no, there is no economy unless you're alive. There's no health care unless you're alive. There's nothing if you're not here. Life is the top of the order. And God will not neglect nor will He forget the innocent blood that cries out from this land. So to all my Democratic friends, I understand. There was a day, there was a day, I know, I know guys right now that are, that are Democrats and they're socially conservative. And I, 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 to me, it's oxymoronic. But, but nonetheless, I understand how we work in America. I'm just telling you, it is time that we dropped all this partisan silliness and we started looking right at who it needs to be. And I'm telling you right now, if things don't change right now, something's got to change. I'll end with this, and then I'll let you go. In our history books, there's a 
There's a phrase that developed through the years that was called the shot heard round the world. It really wasn't a, a literal shooting of a gun or a literal shot, but, but it had to do with when the British in 1775 sailed their armada to our shores in order to quell the American rebellion that was starting to brew in order that we would remain the subjects of the crown. And as they sailed their armada into our harbors, Boston Harbor in particular, uh, there was uh, people who were stationed at the top of the church, you recall, and, and it was one if by land, two if by sea, and they would shine the lanterns. And then a guy by the name of Paul Revere was to get on his horse and uh, ride. And, and, and many people don't know this. There were actually two riders that night. Paul Revere gets all of the all of the uh, 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 affirmation. But, and and I, unfortunately, I wish I, I would have Googled it. Uh, but I, if I'm not mistaken, the other writer, the other writer was a black gentleman. Isn't that interesting? That began to run that direction. And that night, they began to activate and motivate uh, all of the Minutemen, they were called. Men who uh, were just militia. And they grabbed their guns and they went literally to the roads and the streets in order to prepare for what we would eventually know as the Revolutionary War. The shot heard around the world. There was a battle, both at Lexington and at Concord. And that particular battle, those battles, that whole event, became labeled as the shot heard around the world. And the reason they used that phraseology is because that battle, that war, started, started this nation as the most unique amazing, God-blessed experiment that had ever taken place in the history of mankind. We weren't a coincidence. We weren't an accident. But by the providence of God, people founded this nation, instituted with the full understanding that this would be a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, missionary-sending station of a nation. It would literally be the light to the world. And there came a day that it had to be fought for. Unfortunately, it took place literally with, with guns and weapons with the British. But it was called the shot heard round the world. Let me be clear. I'm not, I'm not advocating any violence. I, in fact, I, I don't think we're anywhere near even in the arena of speaking of things such as that. This isn't about violence because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they're divinely powerful. For the destruction of fortresses. Let me tell you something. Prayer can be far more powerful than a 9mm gun. Absolutely. We're going to have to change the hearts of a nation. As well as changing the application of what takes place in a nation. But I believe that in pulpits all over America today. It's not just this pulpit. In fact, I saw... Uh, my friend across the street, Pastor Ed there, Calvary Lutheran, he wrote a great letter to the editor in the paper. And I did not know, we're right across the street, but I did not know that he's participating in the pulpit initiative as well. Right there across the street. God bless him as well. But in pulpits all over America today, on October the 2nd, spiritually speaking, it's reverberating in the eternal realm as well. There's a shot that's going to be heard across this world. We will be silent no longer. No more. No more.
No more silence. We are dealing with this subject every Sunday, but there will be Sundays it'll come up, and, we're, and we will be silent no more. You don't, you don't fear anymore. You don't be silent either. You go back to your schools, back to your workplace. You go back to your neighborhood and go back to your arena. I'm not asking you to pick a fight, but what I am asking you to do is you don't run from one. You don't back down anymore. No more. Silent no more. I'm telling you, I mean, if this be the Lord, I guess we'll find out if we don't do anything. I'm telling you, five to ten years, we, 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 have, a, we have one short window yet before I believe our nation is on a course that I'm not sure can be changed. And we will become another one of those nations in the pages of history books. Rome, Greece, Persia. I could go through all the list of nations who once were and they're no more. Don't you think we're not exempt? And the question is, it may not affect you today, but do you even care about your kids and your grandkids? Do you even care what comes behind you? I'm finding the older I get, the more important that becomes. Because I guess I've, 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 I've enjoyed about everything I need to enjoy. And I'm happy to have enjoyed it, but I don't need it anymore. I, ne- I need to give myself to something bigger than myself. And God helping us, I believe all of us together can give ourselves to something that's greater than just us. Be careful what you ask for. God may give it to you. Let's stand.